This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author and cartoonist Zach Wienersmith discusses his new book, Soonish, 10 Emerging Technologies That'll Improve and or Ruin Everything. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot explores the WNBA's lists of influential books by American women. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by NPD BookScan. Not much happening over in hardcover fiction. Dan right. Brown continues to hold down the top spot. No surprise there. Right. Sold another 88,000 copies of Origin this week. Mm. He's probably going to be hanging out there at number one for a while. Uh, we do have a new number two, which under any other circumstances, if there weren't a Dan Brown book, would be the new number one. And that's Danielle Steele's Fairy Tale, which sold 21,000 copies out of the gate. Perfectly respectable showing, though I feel like it's maybe a little low by Steele's usual numbers. Right. This one is a Cinderella retelling in the uh, present day Napa Valley. Uh, it's got uh, everything you would expect from a Cinderella story, including an evil stepmother and a grand harvest ball. And uh, it's a, it's a family saga in Steele's style, but with that uh, little gloss of uh, the fairy tale. Great. And uh, moving down the list, we don't have a lot this week. Number six, The Rules of Magic by Alice Hoffman. We gave this a starred review. It's the prequel to Practical Magic. And in this volume, three siblings discover both the power and curse of their magical abilities. Uh, Franny, Jet, and Vincent uh, have been kept away from the powers of magic by their mother. She's forbidden wearing black and uh, using Ouija boards, but they can't deny their special abilities to perform such feats as communicating with animals and reading each other's thoughts. Uh, and we say that this is a spellbinding story focusing on the strength of family bonds through joy and sorrow, and it will appeal to a broad range of readers, and especially fans of practical magic will be bewitched. Great. And uh, no surprise that it's sold very well. This week, uh, and we've got uh, some historical numbers for Alice Hoffman through the years and uh, seeing first week sales usually in the three to 5,000 copy range. Um, this one broke the 10,000 copy barrier. Oh, and great. So nice to see her doing great. so well. And the only other two new books on the list for hardcover fiction are tie-in books. We have an anthology of stories uh, related to Overwatch, the video game, and uh, this is the history behind some of the major characters in the game. And then uh, we have The Walking Dead, Here's Negan, which is uh, an illustrated work uh, set in the mm. universe of The Walking Dead. All right. 
Great. So that's what we've got in hardcover fiction, uh, taking a little break from the, the big fall titles. <laughs> so we've got at number two, Grant by Ron Chernow. He's the Pulitzer Prize uh, winning author of Washington, A Life. This is on General Ulysses S. Grant. It's a whopper of a book coming in at 1,100 pages. How does he do it? I have no idea. His books it's, are so it's, huge. It's really I have his Alexander <laughs> Hamilton biography and like you, you hit someone over the head with that there, not getting up again. No, this one this one's going to be the same. Uh, and uh, we say this is he's entertaining and informative. Um, we do say he spares few details, but Grant was a complex, mostly admirable figure, and this may become the definitive biography for the foreseeable future. He basically sticks to uh, preconceptions as a lumbering general and incompetent president. So uh, is it number two? Uh, number three, Rhett and Link's book of mythicality, a field guide to curiosity, creativity, and tomfoolery. These are the folks from the YouTube creator of Good Mythical Morning, uh, which uh, they say is the ultimate guide to living a mythical life. That's at number three. So we got some YouTube uh, stars there. At number six, Building a Story Brand. Clarify Your Message So Customers Will Listen by Donald Miller on the bestseller list. This is actually the first book uh, and happens to be a bestseller by HarperCollins' new imprint, Leadership. Number 11, Billionaire at the Barricade, The Populist Revolution from Reagan to Trump by Laura Ingram. Uh, and then we have – we don't have a PW review of that. We do have one of T.D. Jakes, Soar! Exclamation point, build your vision from the ground up. He's the megachurch pastor and entrepreneur uh, known for his inspirational approach to Christian leadership. And here he, he tailors his, his uh, advice for entrepreneurs. And uh, we have a cookbook. Um, fans of uh, Valerie Bertinelli, uh, here is uh, Valerie's Home Cooking, more than 100 delicious recipes to share with family and friends. She's the host of uh, Valerie's Home Cooking, and she brings here her cheery personality to this well-rounded cookbook. She's sincere and accessible in her presentation of recipes, so it's a, it's a charming little book. Number 23, Eat What You Watch, another cookbook. This one is for movie lovers. So whether it's When Harry Met Sally, The Gold Rush, or Sixteen Candles, there's a recipe for you to cook and enjoy while viewing. And that's what we have. I feel like some years ago there was a lot of discussion about how books were in competition with other forms of media. Mm. And now I'm seeing a book by YouTube stars, books tied into television shows, a book tied into video games, books right. about movies. I feel like there's a lot more sense of collaboration now, this understanding that you can be a fan of yeah. anything. So. Yeah, and that's a good point. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, and, and, and they're there for people who want to enrich their experience while watching things, perhaps. Sure. <laughs> I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Zach Wiener-Smith tells us about some exciting and unnerving emerging technologies. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ted Genoways, author of This Blessed Earth, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Zach Wienersmith on the line. His new book, co-authored by his wife Kelly, is Soonish, 10 Emerging Technologies That'll Improve and or Ruin Everything. Hello, Zach. So glad you could join us. 
Thanks for having me. So you and your wife, uh, uh, you're the co-author with uh, your wife, Kelly, who's a parasitologist or parasitologist uh, who teaches in the biosciences department at Rice. And uh, you both came up with these 10 technologies. And before we get into discussing them individually, how did this book come about? Yeah, so I, you know, I have my separate career in comics, and um, that's gone rather well in the last few years. And we we have a, a, a literary agent who is interested in getting book ideas um, for me, um, and so we we went back and forth on a number of ideas, and then I pitched this idea that was originally, you know, three years ago called something like Fifty Ways to Change the World, and uh, that was that was our pitch. I don't think that was anything our, our our editor ever even saw, but but the idea, the very original idea, was it would be like a book for precocious, dorky teenagers that would be something like, hey, if, if you want to be involved in something that might be revolutionary in your lifetime, here's a list of things and uh, and, and the sort of basic deal on them. Uh, and and essentially what happened, well, first, I think our, our lit agent was like, do 25, 50 is too many. And, you know, we're very glad he suggested that. Mm. Um, and the other thing was, uh, what, so once we, we pitched it and we got um, a publisher interested in it, we were going to do, I think, something like 20 or 25 technologies. And just as we went, we found both we and our editor like the longer, more detailed chapters better. Because it just turns out it's very hard. You know, so, so a book is like a book like this is, say, 70 to 100,000 words. And so if you're doing 25 things, that means you can only put a few thousand words in each article. And so that, that's pretty limiting if you want to write something that's more interesting than the Wikipedia article. Right. So. Yeah, so that, that was the main thing for us. We didn't like just want to give the, the the deal on a technology. We wanted to explore it a little more, talk about sort of the philosophy of it, maybe the economics of it, and we also just wanted to find weird stories and and weird people, interesting people um, who we could we could talk about. Uh, so so now the chapters, I think the shortest one is five thousand words. Some of the longer ones are you know ten thousand words, which is enough room to to play a little more. We we still we still. As nerds wanted more room still, but eventually the book would have been, you know, shaped like a cube and that would have been embarrassing. Uh, so so we, we were we were forced to shorten a bit. And you also needed room for the illustrations. So tell us a little bit about that, that text and illustration collaboration. Yeah. So um, part of the, the, the deal with the book is it's not just uh, the discussion of technologies. There, there are a lot of little comics that I, I've come to think of them as sort of like inside jokes that you'll get having read the chapter or a section of a chapter. Uh, and the thought we had, I mean, partially we did this cause I'm, I'm known for comics and we wanted to play on that a bit. Um, but, but what's nice about it, I hope is that this book is actually a pretty thoroughly researched book. It's pretty in depth. I think even if you know a bit about a topic, we've probably got some information or stories you haven't heard of. Um, and uh, I should say it's been very gratifying in a lot of articles we compared to other pop sci books and we're usually referred to as the in-depth one, which Nice. Perhaps is surprising for a book with, you know, like dirty jokes in comic form. Um, but but so the thought was, well, you know, rather than kind of taking a middle road and not going too much in depth and peppering in humor, we, we went pretty hardcore on our research. And the idea was, well, we throw in a little humor. Maybe that buys us a little more opportunity to to really nerd out on some of these topics. What are your favorite topics to nerd out on of the 10 technologies mm-hmm. that you covered? Um, I'd say it depends on how you define favorite. Because as as someone who wrote or did, you know did a ton of research, I tend to I think like the ones that were easier to research. <laughs> um, 
but uh, I'm really into the cheap space launch stuff. That to me is very exciting, and it, like there's a lot of exciting technologies, but but space launch has a sort of science fiction flavor, uh, and it, it's not like modern terrifying science fiction. It's it's sort of a straight up, hey, we'll go explore Mars in a bigger ship, and that'll be neat um, topic. So so that one was a lot of fun. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so. Um, you know, the way we get to space now is we use uh, relatively simple rockets in the sense that they're, they're more or less just a, a tube that goes to high speed uh, and, and goes up. Um, and that's great and it works and that's why we do it. But there are a lot of other ways you might get around that. So I, um, how dorky can I get on this? Can I talk a little about the... Um, oh, the go light? to town. All right, right. <laughs> so um, when you look at a rocket like standing on a launch pad... You're looking at a thing that is about 80% propellant. Um, so that meaning liquid or solid stuff that gets burned up in order to boost you to space. Another about 16.5% is just the machine itself, the rocket. Uh, and then on, a, on, on just a low Earth orbit ship, um, you get about 3.5% by mass is cargo, is stuff that's actually going to space, is, is you know people or experiments or satellites or what have you. Um, and, and, and I should say, if you're going to somewhere... Uh, as proximate on a cosmic scale as the moon, you get to more like 1.5% is actually going. Uh, that's not a great ratio, um, but we have to do it. Um, and I can get into the, the physics-y stuff a little, but essentially it's fundamental physics. You kind of can't get past that. And if you, if you look at the, the rockets, like the, the old Saturn rockets versus modern rockets, we haven't gotten them much better. It's, it's still about three and a half percent if you're going to low Earth orbit. Uh, and but so what's neat about that from an economic perspective, well, uh, well maybe I should say from a, an engineering perspective, is it's like suppose it's three percent cargo, eighty percent fuel. If you drop that eighty percent to just seventy-seven percent, you know, if you, if you have some relatively modest efficiency, um, then you double the cargo. Uh, or even if you if you just drop it one percent, you've got a third more cargo. Uh, and so so uh, like. You know, there's, there's a topic we discussed very briefly, uh, which will almost certainly never be done, but a, a person at NIAC mentioned it to us uh, called the pogo stick method. <laughs> the idea of the pogo stick method of space launch is essentially you, you would take a rocket and hold it up high and drop it and it would have some sort of spring mechanism on the bottom. <laughs> like a pogo stick, it would compress and then bounce back up and then take off like a normal rocket. And you might say, why in the world would we do this stupid thing? But you know, for that first little bit of launch of a rocket, most of what's going on, most of the fuel is going to moving fuel you will use later. So by just getting a little head start on your your um, on your velocity with all that mass, you actually, you know, I, I think he calculated it's in the book. It was something like, you know, 1% savings on fuel, which doesn't seem like much. But if, if you're starting at only 3% of the ship is cargo plus 1%, now you're at 4%. That's a huge cost benefit, um, huge price drop on putting stuff in space. So that's so I say that to say essentially that if the pogo stick method is enticing, you can imagine the world of other enticing things. The other thing to think about with with rockets is that eighty percent fuel is the cheapest part. Um, it was a little hard to find numbers, and there's a lot of variation, but it, it's something like on the order of hundreds of thousands of dollars, whereas a, a normal rocket launch costs something on the order of fifty to one hundred million dollars, right? So. Meaning, um, so one technology we talk about is reusable rockets. It's a thing SpaceX is kind of doing. They don't fully reuse the rocket. They reuse a part of it, but it's still pretty awesome. Um, and the idea is you essentially get rocket launch more like plane travel. So the, the way we say it in the book, I believe, is something like 
if you have to travel from New York to LA, um, if it were like a rocket, what would happen is when you were over Los Angeles, you would jump out of the plane and the plane would explode into the ocean or something and you just parachute into Los Angeles, which would be cool, but not cheap. Um, and that's essentially what we do with rockets. You go up, you burn up most of the object, which is fuel, and then you dump the whole rocket into the atmosphere. Um, so that's that's the main reason it's so expensive. So if you get it down to where it's just fuel and refurbishing and, and you know staff, uh, you could potentially, I think Elon Musk said 90% of the cost could could be um, removed, although that's Elon Musk, so who knows. But uh, but um, but I, I think um, in other SpaceX people who aren't quite as uh, showmanly uh, said something like 30 or 40%. That seemed reasonable to us. Um, so that's pretty huge. Uh, so you see there's like this this world of opportunity, both in engineering and economics, to figure out a better way. Uh, so we, we kind of discuss all the uh, different ways you might do that in order of uh, increasing implausibility, uh, you know, ranging from reusable rockets, which are fairly plausible, and then to air breathing rockets or space planes, which are mildly possible. And then we go all the way up to like space elevators and using lasers to boost the rocket, uh, which are maybe never going to happen, but quite interesting. So one of the things that interests me is the uh, the whole idea of brain-computer interfaces. Now, mm-hmm. you write about this. Uh, tell us a little bit about it, give us basic understanding. But then, is this something that's going to improve our lives, or, or are, are they going to be the end of us? Uh, I, I, to the, the answer to the second question is probably both. Um, but uh, – uh, yeah, so here's the basic idea with the brain and computer interface. I mean, the basic idea is contained in the name. It's an interface between a brain and a computer. The problem is it's a little hard to do that. Um, <laughs> so the way to think about it is your brain uh, is a, a sort of machine that uses electricity and chemicals to send information around. And um, a lot of these signals, both chemical and electric um are, are, are signals we can detect. It's not evolution didn't design your brain to send off signals, but just as a part of functioning, it does kind of like how, you know, a city isn't designed to emit smog, but you can probably detect a factory by looking for smog. Um, same with your brain. You can detect, you know, uh, where, what parts of your brain are lighting up electrically or chemically. And it, with, with recent technology, you can even detect in, in some cases, what chemical is being used in a certain part of your brain. Um, so, what we talk about is, is uh, you know, so that that sort of thing is the way you might quote unquote read someone's mind. Now, to be clear about that, the way mind reading works in movies probably doesn't make sense. Uh, usually in movies, a brain is something like an internal monologue, uh, which is, is like um, one, if you consult the way your own brain works, it doesn't work like an internal monologue. If you think about the Mona Lisa, you don't think of like a string of letters about the Mona Lisa. And moreover, when you consult your own memories, like maybe you have a, a beloved memory with uh, a parent at the beach or something. Uh, you don't remember that as an internal monologue, but you don't, neither do you remember it as just a visual. You have this whole complicated um, memory system and, and, and that memory gets associated with things that happened later and things that happened before. And so what it exactly would mean to say, uh, we're reading your mind is, is kind of unclear. And that doesn't even account for the fact that a lot of what you think or do is, is happening under the hood is, is somewhat subconscious. So what it would exactly mean to be reading a mind is, is you know, I, I, I want to be careful when I talk about it because it, it's, it doesn't really make sense to say read your mind as such. That said, there, there are already machines that can do things like tell to say 90% accuracy 
whether you are in a positive or negative mood. Um, or, or for example, it, it can be determined whether you're thinking about moving your arm, uh, because we know that the part of your brain that deals with um, particular parts of your body. Um, so there, there are things we can read like about your mind, but but whether it makes sense to quote unquote read your mind, I don't know. Uh, and then we um, oh, and then so the actual machine that would do this, we we sort of list them in order of invasiveness. Uh, so unfortunately, there's a trade off between quality of brain reading and how horrible the experience of getting the reader put in is. Uh, so, the, you know, we can use what's called an EEG, which is maybe what you think of when you think of getting electric signals from the brain, it's sort of a shower cap full of electrodes. Um, and that's fine and all, but the signals obviously get a bit muddy going through your skull. Uh, and so for an EEG to work, you have to detect something like 50,000 neurons working in concert, which to put, to use the city analogy again, that's like as if you wanted to, you were an alien determining things about city, but you could only detect aggregations of 50,000 people doing something at the same time. So you'd only detect like riots, protests, sports events, that sort of thing. Um, so it, it's not useless, but it's, it's um, you, you get big picture type of things. Um, and then I, I shouldn't go into all the detail, but, but you can go all the way down to machines that essentially insert a needle into your brain that has electrodes that can detect individual neurons, um, chemical signals and that sort of thing. And, and you get much more detailed information that way. Uh, but obviously there, there's a trade-off there. Um, anyway, so, uh, and there's also ways we might be able to sort of write information to the brain. That's much less far along because um, we, we, you know, so to speak, we don't know exactly how the hardware works. Uh, we don't know what the operating system is or even if it makes sense to ask that question. Uh, but, but there are some interesting developments happening. Um, and whether it'll make life better or worse, it'll probably make life better in certain senses. Um, if you and, and we don't have this and we probably won't for a long time, but if you could, for example, make people um, say boost people's IQs, um, there, there's some evidence, at least, that that, that would increase happiness and, and, and wealth and, and a lot of other stuff we, we care about. Uh, but, you know, perhaps you're already seeing that the, the problem becomes then you have to be able to afford it. Um, so it, it could be a sort of drastic inequality boost. Um, you know, because you, you would take the people who are already the most powerful and then make them, you know, twice as smart and with inhuman memory ability and, and who knows what else. Um, so that, and, and, and the, the thing that's also ominous about that is once lots of people are doing it, you kind of have to opt in if you want to be competitive in a job market. Um, and, and maybe that seems a bit sort of draconian, like maybe people wouldn't do this, but actually you can look at what's already happening in academia with smart drugs. Uh, which which um, I, I think it's up to like 20, 25 percent of, of elite academics already admit to using smart drugs of one sort or another. Um, and, uh, you know, you can debate the ethics of that. But but the end result is more and more people kind of have to use it if, if they're going to compete. Uh, and so if you had similar stuff with brain computer interfaces, you'd have a similar problem. Um, and so probably eventually everyone has to use some some version of this, which is kind of freaky um, and it might have unexpected bad consequences. When you say smart drugs, what are you referring to? Uh, things like, uh, well, everything from something that's relatively modest, like, say, Adderall to cocaine. Um, and, and again, I, I don't have like an ethical position on that. I'm, I'm for people using whatever they want. Uh, uh, but, but there is a sort of um, commons problem, uh, so to speak, where, where if, if one person can publish twice as many papers, say, by using uh, uh, one of these drugs, uh, it obligates other people in the field to use it. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. 
PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Zach Wienersmith, co-author of Soonish, who is telling us about all sorts of exciting and alarming things. So, Zach, what was another uh, advancement that you thought was particularly intriguing or alarming? What, what Did you come across anything where you sort of went in very optimistic and came out of it going, oh, my God, this is it? <laughs> yeah, um... Uh, in terms of alarming, I mean, almost all the technologies, maybe with the exception of bioprinting, have consequences that could be pretty uncomfortable. I'm trying to think of like what. Well, let me give one. Um, so um, one, I think the quickest chapter we have in the book, one of the shorter ones, is this one on what's called asteroid mining. And it more or less is what it sounds like. Um, it, it wouldn't be like in uh, Armageddon where the, you know you, you bring a rig up to an asteroid because most asteroids aren't like that. Most of them are what are called rubble piles or a lot of them are what are called rubble which are sort of like agglomerations of dust and rock. So if you if you tried to drill into one, you'd blow it apart because it's also in zero gravity or microgravity. Uh, but uh, so we got interested in this idea uh, a lot of uh, nerds are interested in, which is, well, could you go out um, to the asteroid belt or, or, or to a rogue asteroid and get its resources? And the conclusion we came to after some research and interviews was, yes, but probably you wouldn't want to bring it home um, for the simple reason of, for, for, for reasons of economics, right? So, you know, someone will often say something like, well, hey, did you know in this one asteroid there's $50 billion worth of XYZ? Um, and that's true, but, but the question is, would you still not be better off digging a giant hole somewhere on Earth for the same minerals? It, you know, the, the question is not what's in the asteroid, it's what it costs to get there and how that compares to what's in the asteroid. Um, but anyway, uh, there, there, there are some circumstances where you might still want to bring stuff home. Uh, and this, this plays a little into the cheap access to space section, because if it was really cheap to go up, it might make it more plausible um, to go to the asteroid belt for, for resources. Um, the, the danger seemed to us anyway, and, and I should say most of the scientists we talked to working in these fields hadn't, hadn't uh, this was not something they seemed to be worried about, uh, which was suppose you bring, you know, uh, say a thousand tons of iron back to Earth. Uh, that's, if not handled right, that's a weapon, right? If you, if you just drop that on earth, that's as bad as a nuclear bomb, a large one in terms of explosive potential, in terms of the amount of uh, uh, energy that would be released. And it's even arguably worse than a nuclear weapon because a nuclear weapon is, let's say, comparatively easy to disarm, right? So a nuclear warhead has to kind of go off just right to create an explosion. So if you thwack it, uh, with a missile or even, you know, a rock or something, you could probably disarm it and, and it wouldn't be great. You'd still be spreading nuclear stuff around, but it wouldn't be nearly as bad as a nuclear explosion. Um, but if you have a giant hunk of metal falling towards earth and it's already close, there's basically no good way to stop it. I mean, you, you, you could maybe you could throw a nuclear weapon at it, but now you're detonating a nuclear weapon in the atmosphere, uh, which might be, you know, a solution worse than the problem. Uh, so there's this sort of general issue with, bringing stuff back from space to earth in quantity, which is that it can, it can always be a weapon. Uh, there's probably no way around that until we have some like Star Trekky repulsion device or something. Um, and even then, it, you know, if, if there's, uh, 
a nation acting badly or uh, a terrorist group or something that gets a hold of it. Obviously, they're not going to use the the Star Trek uh, anti-gravity system. Um, and I don't actually know that there's a good way around that. It's not something like a legal framework. Uh, and, you know, legal frameworks aren't always perfect. Uh, and, and for something like this, what you want is perfection because it's quite dangerous. Um, so that was, that was a little bit disappointing in the sense that, like, I want, you know, I want a space elevator to send us all to space and have an awesome time. But there's this weird uh, physics problem of, of, you know, gravity wells uh, that is, is probably unsolvable, at least from a, a physics perspective in the near or medium or even long term. So talk to us about bioprinting. Yeah, OK. Um, bioprinting. Uh, is is basically 3D printing bio stuff. Uh, we talk in specific mostly about organ and tissue printing. Uh, and the, the, um, there are different ways you might do this, but if you want to imagine it, you imagine a, a 3D printer of some kind, and it pushes out what's sometimes called biogel or bio ink, which is just you know a sort of jelly-like substance with cells and maybe some chemicals embedded in it. And the idea is in, in some future date, you might be able to print yourself a kidney, say, or a liver or a new heart. And it would be especially cool because you'd, you'd probably have the biogel built from cells derived from your own cell line. So there would be none of these, um, none of the re rejection issues that, that you get when you get a transplant, even if it's a match. Um, and, and in addition, part of why I said earlier that, that you know, there, there's just not a lot of ethical concerns over bioprinting um, is that there are so many people, I think in the U.S. alone, it's about 120,000 people are waiting for an organ. And, um, you know, some of them are going to die. And um, the ones who are waiting, it's not like it's necessarily a bowl of cherries while they're waiting. Some of them might be on dialysis, say, uh, which is both, um, you know, no fun and quite expensive. Uh, so if, if you could imagine a future where, you know, you could print up a new organ for yourself in 24 hours or, or, or whatever, even if it took a week, um, that would make life a lot better for a whole lot of people. That sounds incredibly cool. So that sounds like one of those things that you were looking into and came away really excited about. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, with, 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 with a bit of skepticism in that it, this, you know, anything that's biological is extremely complicated, right? So if you want to print a liver, it's not like, you just get liver cells and you print them out. Uh, we got this quote from a scientist named Bradley Ringeisen. It was from a book he edited in 2010, which referred to the field as mostly being able to make uh, meat jello, uh, <laughs> which, which obviously you don't want to put in your body. Um, uh, so it, it's quite complicated. And one of our favorite people we talked to is Jordan Miller at Rice University. And um, what he does is he uses a, a, a special, specially designed 3D printer system to make veins because one of the deep problems with organs is like you, you maybe in your imagination, a liver is a sort of like brown hunk of meat stuff. Um, but actually it has this extremely complicated network of blood vessels running all throughout um, because blood can only diffuse across about a millimeter. You really need a highway of, of blood going everywhere to, to get nutrients in and take waste out. Um, so if you, if you just print liver cells, it, it's just going to die. It, that, that, that thing you've printed is just going to be dead tissue soon. Uh, so what he works on is trying to make these vascular vasculature networks. And I think the idea is you'd have the network and then you could print the liver cells atop it or something like that. There are different ways it might go. Um, but what was also cool with, with Jordan is the way his works is they essentially 3D print uh, the shape of veins in a sugar starch substance. Uh, and then they throw vein cells on it, which which form into veins. Um, 
and then they they just use I think just water to to dissolve away the sugar, um, and and then you're left with with real live veins, and they actually even they like bud off, they they form these little capillaries, and which is awesome. Uh, but the other thing is that you might imagine they've also gotten into 3D printing candy just because they already have like 3D printing <laughs> sugar. So, uh, so he can do everything. Is is uh, is he's got it all. So how how do you go about illustrating this? Um, so, uh, let me see, do you, you mean like, like, how did we decide what to illustrate or do you mean like, what, what, did, like, I can get into like what software I used or something, which might be boring for you. No, the process of thinking, yeah. How, how, uh, deciding what to illustrate and, and, yeah. um, what inspired um, you, what inspires illustration? Sure. Uh, so it's funny, uh, with, with the very original draft manuscript we turn in, uh, there was just text. Uh, I think we're going to have like what would have been the equivalent of a joke like every two pages in comic form. And we, we just somehow we forgot to do the math on that. But if you think about that, that essentially adds like whatever your starting length is, it's now like a half, uh, 50% larger. And so that would have, I don't know, that might've put us up to like 600 pages, um, <laughs> which, you know, has all sorts of problems that we would have had to, you know, charge a whole lot more and, and uh, might've looked a little bit intimidating on a bookstore shelf. Um, so, one, one, we kind of do things rhythmically. So roughly speaking, I think we, we cut that down to, you know, every something like four or five pages. Uh, and two, uh, it kind of depends on the topic. We, we want to be a little careful. You know, we have chapters that talk about things like cancer. Uh, and so I, I think we try to avoid making too many jokes in those areas. You know, that's something you don't want to be too cute about. Um, and similar with some of the organ transplant stuff. We do have jokes, but there are parts where we, we just felt like we should chill out a little um, but then, uh, mostly it was about kind of hitting a rhythm. It, it's really just, we want to not go too long without having a little joke interjection just to hopefully chill people out, especially in some of the sections that are maybe a little more difficult. Were you also using the illustrations to uh, make things clearer that were maybe difficult to grasp in the text? Mm -hmm. Here and there we were, but, um, yeah, I mean, we have a few diagrams and things, but philosophically, the idea was more um, like my general view, at least, I, uh, and I think Kelly agrees with this, is sort of like a lot of stuff in science seems intimidating when you first hear about it. But if you can kind of laugh at it, take the edge off, I think it makes it easier to learn. Uh, I think it, 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 probably a lot of people have had this experience of you try to learn something in science and it doesn't make sense. And you think about it and you think about it, it doesn't make sense. And then you go for a walk or something and it just suddenly hits you clearly. And I think some of that is when you when you sort of relax and, and instead of like convincing yourself that you can't understand it, uh, I think you're more apt to get it. Uh, so, so most of the humor is is just trying to serve that purpose of, of um, you know, if you can laugh at this idea, then, then then maybe it helps you understand. What was the process like for the two of you working together? Uh, it was it was great actually. <laughs> it's funny when when you tell people you worked with your spouse on a book project, there's always this sort of like oh, did you kill each other um, thing that naturally comes up. But no, we had, we had a very good working relationship. Um, we started kind of with, with somewhat more clearly separate magisteria. We, we, Kelly was doing interviews. I was doing all the comics and that stayed about the same. But, in, you know, theoretically, our, our, our comparative advantages are she's a better researcher. And um, I, I don't know if I'm a better writer, but I enjoy it more. Um, and and she she enjoys the research more. So we, we kind of split up to an extent along those lines. But, 
you know, writing a book like this is really hard uh, because we, you know, we really want to do our research. We almost exclusively use primary sources uh, and, and interviews with people in the field. And so um, we kind of over time just both started doing everything. And by the end, we'd gotten into a really nice sort of back and forth where, you know, one person would take a crack at something and then pass it off to the other person that we talk about. And we just sort of pass chapters back and forth, polishing them um, alternatingly. It, it was, it was kind of nice because, you know, like I said, a lot of these topics are pretty thick uh, and we, we do our best to, to make them all, you know, understandable for someone without a science background. But once you've researched something for two months and then are trying to explain all of it, you get pretty sick of it. And uh, so we, we got into this nice rhythm where you would write a chapter until you just didn't want to think about it anymore. And then you pass it off to your partner and they would work on it and then pass it back and forth. So we had a really nice, uh, nice collaboration. I, I, I think if, if you're like more valuable than like whatever skills we brought to the table is that we're both reasonably mature, communicative, rational people. <laughs> um, so just working with any collaborator of that sort uh, makes, makes life a lot easier. And you're used to doing a podcast together too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We used to do a podcast. We, we've had we had to stop because of babies, because um, <laughs> babies are loud uh, and they don't care that you're trying to you know make a point about some obscure science fact. Uh, so we're, we're we're temporarily um, <laughs> for the last three years on hiatus, but uh, hoping to bring it back sometime in the next few years. We've been talking with Zach Wienersmith. You can find his and Kelly's book Soonish in stores right now. Zach, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about influential books by American women, so stay tuned. This is David Friend, the author of The Naughty 90s, The Triumph of the American Libido, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about two newly released lists of influential books by American women. Hi, Jim. Hey, Rose. How are you? Doing well. It's Hello, always Jim. nice to have you here. So these book lists are from the Women's National Book Association. Uh, tell us where they came from and what their purpose is. Okay, yeah, so we'll give a little backstory before we start rattling off a few names here. Um, the list came about because uh, 2017 is the 100th anniversary of the found, founding of the WNBA. And, you know, it's it's got an interesting story of itself. Um, like I think many uh, women's organizations founded near and far, um, it started because... Uh, Women booksellers were not allowed into the ABA <laughs> back in uh, 1917. Uh, the ABA was a was a male only organization. So um, a group of 35 women uh, thought that they should do something about that. And they're also very powerful advocates for the book themselves. Booksellers and sure. were committed to the idea that books could really make a difference. So they felt that the time was right. It was. Uh, World War, World War One. Um, uh, the campaign for women's right to vote was gearing up, and it would be passed in a couple of years. So time seemed right. So these thirty-five women got together at Sherwood's Bookstore in New York City, mm. and uh, Women's National Book Association was formed. So they're coming out with this list of one hundred nonfiction books, and then a second list of one hundred books in fiction, memoir, and poetry. 
uh, all by American women to celebrate their 100th anniversary. Right. And they'll, um, they released it uh, earlier this year, but uh, it's going to be uh, front and center at their, uh, their, their big reception uh, October 28th. Uh, here in New York at uh, Pen and Brush. For this whole year, uh, the WNBA has been um, holding different kinds of events. I think you may have talked about one that um, they sent a book a book a day to Donald Trump. <laughs> I think it was back in right. March. That's right. Um, books they thought that he should read. Um, as far as I know, they did not hear a response. Uh, they had done something similar with Eisenhower and he or at least Eisenhower's office, had acknowledged that they received the books. Mm -hmm. But we're not sure what happened with Mr. Trump. Um, so, yeah, so on the 28th, it, it should be a good event. Um, what they've had, they, the, the WNBA has about a 1,000 members, 12 chapters. Um, and each of the chapters over the course of the year has been holding panel discussions um, on different issues surrounding literature and women. Um, the, the association really sees itself as, you know, trying to lead discussions um, around literature yeah. and, and the importance of the book. And it also does promote, promote what women achievements uh, in the book industry as well. Although they do point out that they have a few male members who uh, agree with the overall goals of the association. And the goals are generally, you know, Certainly not strictly limited to women's issues. Um, so again, it's about the power of the book and the, the, um, the need to make the book and the ideas in the book uh, aware to as many people as possible. And you know, talking to some of their executives for the story that's in Monday's issue, you know, again they say, you know, the ideas that um, books books contain are are more needed perhaps than ever before, given the, the political climate of today. Um, so, yeah. So, again, these lists were um, done in conjunction with that. And I think we've all been scanning them. So, uh, it, it is where do we want to begin? Well, it is interesting <laughs> that they broke it down into the 100 books, books of nonfiction and then the 100 books of fiction, poetry, and memoir. So, they, they put memoir in with, with fiction and poetry. Um, but uh, let's go down the list. Let's talk some of the uh, some of the nonfiction. Nonfiction. All right. Who who do we? Uh, let's see. I mean, uh, the names are great. Obviously, Betty Friedan, the feminine mystique, is on here. Um, kind of going totally out of order. And anybody who sees somebody they like, feel free to. Uh, I spotted in. Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, which uh, for their. Can, since these are listed as uh, influential books, it's hard to think of one that, that was more influential, that would change the entire direction of how people think about the environment and uh, right. our responsibility toward it. All right. And I think that, again, was, yeah, that's a great example of the type of books they're poking here. Um, uh, the Joy of Cooking is listed on here. Sure. Uh, right. Um, you know, Susan Brown Miller, Against Our Will. Mm -hmm. Not think anybody can argue with that. Um, Laura Hellebrand, Seabiscuit. Um, terrific story. Uh, let's see if we can find some other ones that are... Uh, uh, Barbara, Barbara Tuckman, The Guns of August. Uh, and they go all the way back. They have Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, Jocelyn Gage, and Ida Husted Harper, The History of Women's Suffrage. Uh, six volumes <laughs> published between uh, 1881 and 1922. So uh, they, they get 
properly vintage here. Right, absolutely. It's very and appropriate I, yeah. for the 100th anniversary. Right. And I see Francis Fitzgerald here, Fire in the Lake, you know, about Vietnam. So, uh, you know, a lot of the, the major topics of the last hundred years are represented here one way or another. Angela Davis's Women, Race, and Class. It's a, an absolute classic. Yeah, so there's uh, yeah, a lot of important books. Mm -hmm. You know, Joan Diddy and the White Album. Um, let's see what we can find over in fiction and memoir. Um, well, it was before we came on the air, we did talk about Hillary Clinton's Hard Choices made the list. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but there's certainly plenty of others. Um, I'm delighted to see Alison Bechel's uh, Fun Home on there because it's a book that, because it's uh, written in, in comic format, it sometimes gets overlooked in considerations of important books, but it's a major one. Right, yeah. I think they did a really great job. I think they were very uh, keyed into uh, all the different issues that really they wanted to try to represent on this list. Mm -hmm. Well, even contemporary ones like Jesmyn Ward, uh, Salvage the Bones is on there. Right, right, yeah, yeah. And then with Sylvia Plath, how can you leave out the bell jar? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, Adrian Rich, uh, diving into the wreck, as we should kind of... People know now, and poetry is on here too. <laughs> well, yeah, you've got uh, Marianne Moore uh, becoming Marianne Moore, uh, uh, early poems. So that was, you know, she was hugely influ influential uh, in the fifties. I'm sorry, early on. And uh, Nitazaki Shange for colored girls who have considered suicide mm, when the rainbow is right. enough, yeah. which is an incredible, incredible work. Right. Yeah. The women's room, Marilyn French. Uh, I don't think they left you know, too much out. Harry Beecher Stowe, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin, obviously. And I'm excited as a speculative fiction fan to see Shirley Jackson on here, The Lottery and other stories. Mm -hmm. Again, with the consideration of who is influential, the the influence of Jackson's work on generations of horror and dark fiction authors can't be overstated. There's an entire award named after her. Well, Tremendous force. Right. Absolutely. Oh, there you go. Um, who else do we see? Well, all the way up to the past. Um, Patty, um, not the past, the recent past. Patty Smith's Just Kids. Mm -hmm. Sonia Santamayer, My Beloved World. Obviously a memoir. So, you know, it's really, there's a lot of good books here that uh, I think people would really enjoy. I'm, I'm glad uh, the WNBA is bringing attention to them. Yeah, this is great. I'm very impressed. And so what are they doing to uh, push these lists now and bring them to everyone's attention? You mentioned that uh, we're, we're doing a piece on the anniversary. On the anniversary. Um, they've, they've done what you would think. Um, there are a lot of outreach to media outlets and that sort of thing. I think all that they have 12 chapters, as we said. I think the chapters try to reach out to their local media. Um, so, you know, they're, they've done what they can. Um, and they're really, uh, looking forward to having a nice celebration and maybe gaining a little more momentum, uh, you know, October 28th and looking forward to the next hundred years. Excellent. Well, that's great. Thank you so much, Jim. Always uh, good to have something like this brought in front of us. Cause I uh, don't know that I'd necessarily see it otherwise. So no, there you go. I appreciate you, uh, Bring it up. And yeah. it is impressive to see it, and it's... Uh, it is, right? It's it, yeah, it all it really at once. Is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> As a collection. Yeah. It's very inspiring. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. 
Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another delicious author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 